Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. G'day and welcome. My name is Matthew Gibson, and this week on the Educated Hunter Podcast, I speak to a man named Ben Barney. Ben is a Kiwi, but now is based here in Canada. He went through the Ultimate OE program a number of years ago and has kicked on with his professional hunting or guiding career since then and has returned into the mountains of British Columbia a number of times since we first met. Uh, Ben has had um, what I'd describe as a very intimate experience with a grizzly bear when he first came to Canada, so we (laughs) <laughs> talk away that talk about that wee incident, which is some of you will hopefully find entertaining. Um, we talk about a, a wide range of different topics when it comes to hunting. Uh, we talk a little bit about the recent grizzly bear hunting ban here in British Columbia and what that means for hunters. Uh, we talk about, to be honest with you, I get up on my soapbox a couple of times and go on a little bit of a rant. So I apologise for that in advance, and I don't claim to be right about everything. Um, it is a conversation though I think is worth having with hunters in New Zealand and around the world and I think we need to be open and honest about a few of the topics that come up so everybody's going to have their own opinion and everybody draws a line in the sand um, according to their own personal preferences and, and justifications and that's fine but I think it's a conversation worth having so if you want to chime in join us on our Facebook group and have at it or you connect with us on on Instagram or, or wherever, we're, we're happy to have a, a healthy and open debate about a few of the things that we touch on during the course of this conversation. So I won't delay it any further. I uh, hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, here is Ben Barney. Well, g'day and welcome. Thanks for sure. getting yourself up here. Yep, no, pretty good to see you again. Yeah, I've got Ben Barney here who's, we've had him on the podcast before, but not officially, because it was when we were first learning to do it in, what are we, January, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, end of January, start of February or something. Yeah, yep. so it was at the SCI show in Las Vegas, and as you can imagine, the boys were pretty excited to be there, let's just say that, and we uh, we dragged you, Sam, Beautiful, mm-hmm. Stu Smith, mm-hmm. Kyle de Villiers, and myself, we were in a hotel room drinking Hendrix on the rocks, yeah. Talking about hunting stories in Canada, so it was it was a bit messy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say this has become more refined since then, but but certainly, um, yeah, it, it's it was a bit rough around the edges, and we learned a lot in terms of recording quality. And and Kyle never had a microphone, but we didn't realise he'd been in a in the um, an outfitter's booth all day just drinking. Yeah, whiskey, and he came up to the room. So he was, <laughs> he was let, at least ten doubles in front of everybody else. Yeah. So he sort of just sat there and laughed and smiled and swore constantly through the whole thing. So we had to edit that down a little bit, and uh, I think we might use a portion of it in this podcast. You know, it, it made for a good yarn. So we'll cut to that at some point, and you guys are about to 
appreciate some of the background noises. <laughs> yeah, good. We'll get that into get it into that in a minute. So you're here in Victoria, yep. which is uh, on Vancouver Island, and you are doing what? Uh, so I'm working as a refrigeration technician. So fridge is obviously trade. Yep, yep. So uh, I did my trade in New Zealand, and I did that there until 2015 when I came over to Canada. So yeah, I did that for seven years, and I came over here to do the hunting with Matt, or with Ultimate OE. And uh, yeah, I love the love the hunting gig so much. Obviously, I wanted to keep doing it, and the only way for me to do that was to apply for residency. And the smartest way for me to be able to apply for residency was to work through my through my trade. Right. So the the company you're working for here in Victoria is sponsoring you to stay in in Canada as a permanent resident. That, that is correct. Yes. Awesome. What kind of fridge work are you doing here? So something that drew me to this company was uh, refrigeration. Now, without getting too much into the trade, there's not too much in refrigeration that is actually refrigeration. You get a lot of heating, a lot of cleaning jobs, a lot of just crap you don't really want to be doing. Maintenance stuff. Yep. Yeah. Pipes and cleaning out filters and stuff, and just driving around and glorified cleaners to be. To be fair, for the most extent, you just get paid a little bit better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what's different about this job? So this job is purely refrigeration. He uh, specialises in uh, flash freezing fish. So we do marine refrigeration, and it's all commercial fishing boats. Um, the systems he designs when we build, like we actually design and build the systems in the shop, and we'll install them into the boats um this going to be handy on my fishing boat at home oh yeah you bet you got to spare ninety thousand dollars <laughs> oh really okay. <laughs> <laughs> well the day i can afford to buy a million dollar fishing boat then maybe we'll do that yeah yeah so uh that's how much they're worth 90 grand yeah just for a self-contained box wow yeah is he the only one doing them or something yeah so he's got a pretty fancy sort of a design that was come up with a few years ago um, and that coupled up with a particular compressor that works really well, we're running a plate temperature of around minus 85 degrees Fahrenheit. So wow. pretty cold, which is one of the things that obviously drew me to it because there's not too many places that will run at those sorts of pressures and temperatures. Yeah. So that, so obviously you've got a really cold plate mm-hmm. and then you've got a compressor that's blowing air over top of that. Uh, So the compressor with uh, the refrigeration cycle, you've got a refrigerant and you've got uh, four main components. You've got a compressor, a condenser, a expansion valve and a a metering device, sorry, and an evaporator. So the whole thing is a sealed system. You uh, basically suck in a cold, superheated gas and then it gets compressed to a high pressure, high temperature gas, which then gets cooled down into a liquid and it goes through a uh, metering device, which then, just with the way it all works, uh, causes this big pressure drop, basically, and that pressure drop makes the liquid refrigerant want to boil, and it's actually the boiling that absorbs the heat. So opposed to actually blowing cold, it's actually 
Sucking it, heat. Yeah, sucking heat. Huh. And it's that boiling effect that, uh, yeah, works. And then that's obviously go after the metering device, it goes into the evaporator, and that's where it does all its boiling and then comes out of the evaporator as a cold gas again and goes through the compressor and all over. So it's probably not something you can whip up with a old dog tucker fridge, some number eight wire and some tinfoil. Oh, you know, with a little bit of Kiwi ingenuity, anything's <laughs> <laughs> possible. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So you're working on fishing boats. Mm-hmm. Are they? What are they catching here primarily, do you know? Um, I think it would be fair to say the big species is black cod. But they also do a lot of, I think, bluefin tuna. Yeah. And uh, kingfish, um, prawns. Right. Yeah. So they're blast freezing it all out at sea and coming, it's coming back. Yep. And the beauty of these particular systems is the evaporators, the cold butt, doesn't have a fan blowing over it. Right. So you don't get the wind chill and you don't get the freezer burn that you can get with a blast freezer. Okay. Yeah. It works on uh, convention. Okay, that's way more. I even knew about refrigeration. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you can forget it. <laughs> yeah. um, well, to be fair, now we've got we've got a boat builder that's been to the Ultimate OE program. Mike, if you're listening, you know who you are. We've got you. You can do the refrigeration. Yep. You just need someone who can finance it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. There's no shortage of finances. Yeah. Um, all right, bud. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I think I've had this conversation with you before, but before you went into the Ultimate OE program, can you run me through your hunting pedigree? Had you done a lot of hunting, or was it something that you've come into late in life? For me, I'd always grown up, my dad had a jet boat, so we always went out, did a lot of fishing on the river and that sort of stuff. Whereabouts? Uh, the Waitaki River. Okay. Um, and also, obviously, all the lakes up, so the White Lake, Lake Waitaki, Beamore, yeah. Aviemore. Ohasi, all that sort of stuff, all that area I've frequented. Yep, Yep. central ways. Um, And then a few backcountry rivers, but uh, I don't know, probably around eight or so. uh, My dad and I would go shooting rabbits and hares and possums. That was probably the introduction to hunting or to shooting. And then, yeah, when I was 12 or 13, one of my uncles, because my father never... never, uh, I uh, had the opportunities to hunt big game yeah. of any description, really. So, yeah, one of my uncles was out going on a deer hunt, and he's one of the uncles I did a lot of hunting and tramping and okay. that sort of stuff with. So you considered him to be sort of your hunt, main hunting mentor? Exactly, yep, yep. And, uh, yeah, so I was – and he was pretty new into it as well at that time. When I went out with him, he shot his first fellow deer. But I also did trips – uh, over central way shooting goats with my uncle and I used to love that would go away for a long weekend four days or so go goat shooting yeah go smoke a whole bunch of goats and alright so your uncle probably your biggest hunting mentor mm-hmm. can you think of it like a hunting story or experience something that um, holds a sort of a significant amount of meaning to you or something that you learnt something from Think back into your hunting and your outdoor stuff. Is there yep. anything that stands out in your mind that you sort of think that was a bit of a learning curve for me? Probably the biggest biggest thing for me, I don't know how appropriate it is, you're about to delete it if not. I haven't deleted anything yet except, <laughs> except for the lads in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably something that stuck with me the most, whether it's even that much hunting or more life related, but 
was uh, we were shooting goats and I shot this nanny and she had a kid. Right. So I went up with my uncle and cut the throat of this kid. And that's probably something that stands out as uh, that was pretty pretty hard for me. What? Uh, what's the word? The, the realisation, like, it's easy to shoot an animal. Yeah. Anyone can shoot an animal, but to actually grab that animal and put your knee into its back and grab its, grab it by the head and stick your knife into its throat while it's fighting, fighting you. Yeah. Um, that's, that's it, pretty real. Yeah, it is. It's real. It's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. It's very real. And yeah, I think that gives you an appreciation for the life. And I guess like I was lucky enough with my uncle, he's a relatively conservation minded guy so would often would go out and uh the difference from where we went uh in the 20 years that had been going there or 25 years whatever it was shooting goats um the difference in numbers was night and day because the hunters were there taking care so of it and there's, under control. Yep, exactly and there's a lot of helicopter hunting so he always wants the opportunity about to take uh, his son at that stage would have been three or four or something and he always wanted to have the opportunity to take his son there one day and do the same thing and would often hunt uh, would take meat out as well I think it's a what did you say I don't know if it's an appropriate thing I think it's a, a really appropriate thing it's a very topical thing and I think it's a, it's something that most hunters um, experience mm-hmm. and, a, and a very similar experience that stands out in my mind and it probably wouldn't have come to fruition if somebody asked me the same question but I still remember the days like vividly at some of my earliest childhood memories yeah you know I grew up on a farm and I remember dad cutting the throats of of sheep yep and I I still remember being not so much traumatized but certainly shocked by it and it hit pretty hard you know you go from because I've always loved animals, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I grew up with animals. We always had pets, and and growing up, and it was I would have been very young when I got exposed to that. Yep. You know, probably younger than five. I'm picking. Yep. But I still remembered it, and I and it's never left me. Mm-hmm. Because once you are involved in that and see that happen, it's it there's becomes abundantly clear the difference between life and death. Yeah. So I think most hunters, I like to think, feel remorse when they shoot something yeah kiwi hunters are a little bit different sometimes <laughs> because we have the luxury of dismissing it in the name of pest control correct so when you talk about goat shooting is a great example because yep. you know in order to maintain healthy populations of goats or get rid of them in certain areas mm-hmm. because they breed very quickly they're very damaging to the new zealand bush the flora and the fauna they yep. compete directly with our stock so yep. there's you know, a, a big reason to keep their numbers down. We give ourselves the social license to go out there and shoot large numbers of them and leave them lie. And yes. it and it it devalues them as a as a um, as an animal. As an animal. Yep. As something that you need to give respect. Because it's very hard to respect every goat if you're going out and shooting a hundred of them a hundred of them in a week, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's it's one of these things that in order for Kiwi hunters to do that, and guys who are in pest control, guys who own big properties and farms, guys who hunt, we give ourselves, I think, a little bit of a leave pass 
when it comes to taking responsibility for what we're doing. And I learned pretty quickly, you know, as I got into university, we got um, paid a little bit to do goat control. Yep. And people, you know, who hunted a little bit at university used to say, I remember them saying, wow, that's awesome job. I can't believe you get paid to do that. And I used to say that the shine wears off it at about 20. Yeah. Then it's just hard work. Yeah. And you, the more you do it, the less, you know, excitement there is amongst it and then it just becomes a, a chore yeah. and not everybody can do that you have to be able to switch off your brain know that you're doing it for a higher purpose I mean yep. there is justification behind removing animals pest animals in New Zealand yep. but your experience I think is really interesting because your experience probably started off hunting goats young fella yep. shooting them at a distance you know, you shoot them at the distance, looking at them through a scope, walking up to it, and it's dead. You know, there's a big difference between that and, as you say, cutting the throat. Yeah. Particularly goats if they get a bit audible. Yeah, goes. yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's that particular experience or whether it's the way, uh, the way my uncle emphasised the respect for animals and that sort of stuff, but there is definitely a huge respect for life. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is a is a really important component to being a hunter, and also think it's a really important component when it comes to um, talking to and interacting with people who don't hunt. Yeah, you know, separate anti hunters. I mean, they're the one percent of one percent who you're never gonna went over but people who don't hunt they generally don't understand that and part of growing up in cities and growing up yes. where you don't know where meat comes from you know we live in a world where or you're not exposed to the the reality yeah well, exactly the, the reality and it's uh, it's an interesting thing with where the world's going because like you say there's more and more cities and for us or like yourself you were brought up on a farm and uh, New Zealand 40, 50 years ago. Everybody had a little bit of a connection to it. Exactly. Not everybody, but a much but, higher proportion. Yeah, exactly right. And New Zealand were lucky. I mean, New Zealand is, you know, a country, what are we now, 4 million, 4.5 million people? Yep, you know, something like that. And, you know, I see the big difference here when you're talking about the big cities in like Vancouver and Seattle and, and LA. I mean, LA is 20 million people that have literally zero contact with any kind of agriculture. They go to yeah. the store and yep. get their food. So when you're talking about eating meat, which that's somewhere between 95 and 97% of the human population eat meat. Yeah, there you go. So, you know, the 3% who are vegetarians or vegans, that's a very small percentage. So the vast majority of people don't eat meat, but the only reason we're about to get to, what are we now, 4 billion people? Yeah, not even sure. You know, and we're exponentially growing. Yep. The only reason we've been able to do that is we've figured out how to raise animals in mass in the form of agriculture. Yep. And we've got so separated from that people will literally sit there eating their cheeseburger or their whatever. Yeah. And so I can't believe you can go and hunt. I can't believe you can kill an animal. Yes. And the the tendency is for them to believe that um, hunters you know, kill animals for the fun of it. Mm-hmm. Which is really not the case. I don't actually enjoy pulling the trigger. I don't like killing things. I get a healthy dose of, of hunter's remorse every time I pull the trigger, which is always mo- 
more, you know, mixed in with, you know, exhilaration, excitement, a really deep connection with the environment, mm-hmm. um, um, sense of pride, knowing where my protein's coming from, knowing that I did it ethically, did it right, and before, you know, my arrow hit it or, you know, bullet hit it, it, you know, yep. often didn't know people existed. Exactly. So it's the most humane and ethical way for an animal to go out. Yep. I eat meat, I'm proud of it. And yep. I enjoy doing it that way. Living in Vancouver and being regulated by Canada's hunting regulations, yep. I can't hunt all year round. So one of the biggest mental battles that I go through at the moment is if I want to eat steak, generally I have to go to the supermarket mm-hmm. and buy it. And unlike New Zealand, we have all you know grass-fed, free-range meat. Yeah, tell me about it. Here, we're you know pushed into buying feedlot. Mass farmed for antibiotics, fed on grain. Yeah, and not that's the best. And I can taste it, boy. It's not you, good. Yeah, you and me both. It's actually been harder. I think it's taken me a bit over a year. I was sitting at the airport to go home. Actually, over two years. Um, I was sitting at the airport to go home for a friend's wedding, and I got talking to a guy who was working in Calgary, but was brought up in Victoria. And I said to myself, "It's bloody hard to find an actual good tasting piece of." meat like well, the meat here's just it's got no flavor and i all i can put that down to is it's been grain fed it's grain fed and grown really quickly yeah right. the other thing so yep. it's just like a pine tree in new zealand versus a pine tree here like they take a hundred years to grow here because it's been yeah. eight months of the year frozen yeah you know in new zealand they grow very quickly so as a result the wood is softer than it is in other places exactly yeah um same with meat if you're growing a cow or a pig or something and you grow it incredibly quickly it doesn't have time to you know not to mention what you're feeding it yeah and what you're pumping into it so it doesn't you know drop dead in a what's a really nasty environment and it's people have it's so easy to pull down the veil of me (laughs) no see no worry about type thing okay and so anyway yeah i uh well, back to my refrigeration, I um, did a bit of work at the different meatworks and that sort of stuff. Yeah, so that's Ooh. interesting to see because, like, I eat meat and also eat meat that's been killed in no matter which way or form. And that's always the thing that gets me. You were saying earlier about the people that talk about hunting and killing animals. And my argument to the anti hunters is if I were an animal that was. A prey, um, hunt me. Yeah, exactly. Because I have been to those places, and it's <clears throat> it's not the worst. But you can't tell me those animals don't know what's coming. Yeah, and to see, uh, yeah, I'd much rather be just chewing on a piece of grass one day, minding my own business, than sharp pain, fading lights, done. Yeah, yeah. And if if you do it right, particularly if you're bow hunting. I mean, I know you've been involved in the industry long enough now. You've probably seen a few animals get shot well with a bow. Yeah. And when you shoot an animal well with a bow, because it's so quiet, they often, you know, that sounds like a stick breaking. They flinch. They'll, you know, sort of feel like they're getting bitten by an insect bite. But, you know, that kind of trauma, they don't feel it. And they just feel woozy, sit down and go to sleep. It's Yeah. As far as... You're still killing something. Yep. Like, I'm not trying to take anything away from that. <laughs> like, something's still dying in the process, but it's better than standing on a, on a line 
Exactly. Standing in a big yard, no grass, just yeah. smell of death, waiting to go up the race. And then there's two different way, two different parts of this too. It's like in North America, when we're talking about the meat we're eating here and hard to find a good steak, it's hard to find good pork, it's very hard to find um, a good tasting anything. Yeah. Uh, unless you're prepared to pay like absolute top dollar yeah. for. So I think I paid uh, fifty six dollars for some lamb chops the other day. Yeah, fifty six bucks for a lamb chop. You go to a butcher and buy a good steak, like a good grass fed beef steak. Yep. You're looking at thirty five yep. to fifty bucks for that's, one steak. That's just for the steak I'm cooked. Yeah, <laughs> it's not even in a restaurant. Yep. Like it's it's expensive and it tastes way better. And people be to pay for it if they can afford it. Yeah. But the vast majority of people can't afford that. You know, you're ten ninety nine a kilo beef down at the um, thrifties you know, or the thrifties or the whatever. supermarket yep. is. You know, the steaks are bigger, and they've got shitloads of fat in them, and they look. I couldn't believe actually the first time I walked around the supermarket when I got to the island. Yeah. And uh, it's like porterhouse steak. I think it was. 10 or 12 dollars for four of them I was like you've got to be kidding got <laughs> down on that yeah. and uh, it's just like hmm yeah that doesn't taste great this isn't like the porterhouse I'm used to yeah huh yeah yeah so I mean there's two parts of it there's how they raise them the animals and I think in North yeah. America and, and places that are supplying a massively bigger population like we've only got 4 million people in New Zealand so most of the meat we eat We've got a lot of agriculture. We get a really high quality. What we're used to is the average. Yeah. Now, even if you're getting a bloody 10-year-old dairy cow, it's still better than yep. what you get here as a base level um, because at least they're pasture-fed yeah. and they, you know, they are... And the seasons and, probably in New Zealand lend themselves better to, to being able to keep a... Being more chilled out. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's that side of it. And then also, so it's the way that they're raised. And then there's, and then there's the... You know, the dark reality of it doesn't matter how organic, free range, you know, you can give every one of them a name and yep. go outside and give them <laughs> a back massage every morning. Mm. You know, they can be top 10 level treated, you know, Whole Foods in, New Z- in, in North America are big on their, um, on their ratings. They rate the steaks from one to five in terms of how good their life was essentially so even if it's number five at the end of that there's still the lights going out and that generally yeah. involves getting shift, shipped off to an abattoir you know ending up on the chain so that is still the reality something's still dying mm-hmm. but given the opportunity i'd much rather hunt my food but the issue we have is you can't say everybody should hunt because then there wouldn't be nothing yeah, to hunt. that's, that's right. not sustainable no because we went down the agricultural path so it is impossible to sustain a po- sustain a population of four billion people if everybody out is going out looking for the yeah if everyone's out shooting the first thing that come they come across exactly yeah so it's a kind of a conundrum in yep. in all honesty yep this question is can you describe to me your most frightening or worst moment while you've been hunting yeah I can imagine your match you'd uh, well you know. There's a option I could give you, but we'll give you another one. Yeah. So the year after I got a little bit chewed on. <laughs> okay, back. <laughs> if everybody's listening, okay, what we're going to do is I think we'll play it now. So what I'm going to do is play it now. Save that answer, the, your secondary answer. So I'm going to ask you after this what your second most unpleasant experience was hunting. Mm-hmm. But I know what your first most experience was. And 
that hotel room in Vegas, as much as the boys were um, shaking their gins in the background with ice in it and laughing and dropping the odd Mm -hmm. F-bomb, Sam Beautiful was there, who was with you at the time. So you and him tell the story really well. So what we're going to do is we'll cut to that now and let everybody listen to it, and then we'll come back to it. Does that work for you? Yep, yep. Cool. the 25th 2015 we had a sheep hunter who had tagged out his sheep we'd been doing some moose hunting and the opening day of the goat season was the 25th of august so we weren't having any luck finding a moose so we went out looking for a goat and lo and behold as we're riding out to go find a goat there was a moose standing in the swamp not far from camp so we uh shot that on the way past and the hunter wasn't looking for a for a shoulder mount, and I'd never skinned out the head of a moose before. And I said, "Oh, well, if you're not actually after it, then would you mind if I skinned it out, perhaps? Because it doesn't matter if I mess it up, right?" So uh, <coughs> spent most of the afternoon. Oh, I think we finished seven or eight o'clock or something, probably. And we had dinner. Sam was washing up, doing some dishes, and I'd gone out from the cook cabin to the sleeping cabin and I came back and the generator was running the lights were on and it was dusky it wasn't quite quite dark but it was dusky and I thought oh you know the cabin with the lights on would make a nice picture so uh, I said to Sam so oh, can I borrow your, borrow your tripod and uh, take some pictures of the cabin I grabbed his tripod went about 30 yards in front of the the cabin and there's about another 30 yards to the edge of the lake and set up my tripod and took a picture and made a couple of adjustments and took another picture and then I heard some barking and then a kiwi and not really particularly savvy with all the animals around and I was barking first thought it was a dog and then second thought to be fair you'd been there for what three weeks yep 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 three weeks in Canada <laughs> straight off the boat yeah pretty much straight off the boat and uh, <clears throat> yeah I turned around the sparking was behind me to my right turned around and saw a shadow running along the along the edge of the lake and I could see it was a bear and then it just made a beeline straight for me and they say you should stand your ground, so I did the whole stand your ground thing. The whole get away, bear. Get away! <laughs> so at this point, this is the first bear you've ever seen in your life, period? Yep, yep. The first bear I had ever seen, ever laid eyes on, was fucking running at me full tilt. <laughs> <laughs> so just to put this in context, we, we spend you know, half a day doing bear training and you know, we run you through the, the process of deciding whether it's a defensive or non-defensive bear and, you know, is it looking at you like a meal or looking at you like you're a potential threat. And your introduction to bears was a bear at full charge? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's about right. Bluff charge. And it got to, uh, to be fair, probably three metres, maybe two metres. And I was just like, nah. <laughs> no, I don't think this is a bluff charge, eh? <laughs> And it's like, I know I can't outrun a grizzly. They like they run quick, but I ain't about to stand here and get eaten. So I turned around. I had my my jandals on, 
my stubbies, <laughs> my fleece top, my hat, my sunnies. And uh, I took off running and one flip-flop went one way. Another one went the other way. And uh, I got within about 10 yards. So I guess actually I should backtrack there. When I was doing the whole getaway bear, Sam and the hunter were still in the cabin and Sam thought, I thought you were yelling at horses to begin with, just the way you were yelling, get out. But then it dawned on me there was no bells dinging, which is strange. And then I heard the barking, growling, snapping, whatever noise that the, it is that they make. Yeah, just of a conduit, when he sees bells, all the horses have got bells hanging around their necks so we can find them in the morning. So yeah. if there's horse noises with no ding-donging, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And then it was Ben yelling my name in a sort of quite a high-pitched, <laughs> you <could> say <laughs> stressful tone <laughs> or urgent tone. And that, along with the barking noise, I, I thought a wolf to begin with. And then it was a bit more growling and then it sort of dawned what was happening and it's like, no, nah, shit, this can't be happening. <laughs> and um, so I went to grab my gun. We usually have a gun. Um, by the door for this sort of situation and um, went to grab it but it wasn't there because I'd used it to finish or we'd used it to finish off a moose uh, that day and when we got back the hunter had lent it up beside the counter outside which I had seen him do but in that sort of high paced moment I'd forgotten so when I went to grab the gun, it wasn't there, and I started yelling at my hunter, Al, where the fuck is the gun? And he, we walked outside, and he's, he sort of, we, as we walked outside, we could see Ben running from out of the darkness towards the cabin, and this shape, basically, this black shape, <laughs> licking his heels. <laughs> and Al, our hunter, uh, took one look at that and froze. And was looking at the gun and couldn't speak, basically, so he couldn't tell me where the gun was. <laughs> and um, <laughs> he, he later told Ben that, um, I think it was the next morning, he's like, I thought I was going to watch you die. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks, Al. Thanks, mate. Yeah, thank, yeah thanks. And, um, great spectator sport. It happened, I mean, it happened, <laughs> happened bloody quickly. Yeah. And, um, Seemed like it took forever, but it only took me a second or a split second to actually remember, realise where the gun was, and I could see it. Out of, I saw it out of the corner of my eye and grabbed it. Yeah, so then I was, yeah, about 10 yards in front of the cabin. 12 feet. About 12 feet. Oh, that's where it finished, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I turned around just in time to see the bear jumping up, and I was able to. Well, I guess naturally enough, not wanting to take it, I uh, twisted around to the side, and the bear got its teeth into the into my back, my side on my back, and put a wee swipe down the side of my leg, and uh, I was able to yeah twist out the side of it and around behind and up and onto the onto the porch of the cabin where where Sam then shot it. Yeah, I sort of shot as you're pushing off. Yeah. You're sort of, it was almost like you're dancing. <laughs> yeah. We're all laughing now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah but, no, it could have gone pretty differently. Like, if it wasn't for Sam being there, I wouldn't be here now, I'm sure of it. Like, 100% sure of that. 
that that fully saved my life. Because on the other point that it was a sow and she had three two-year-old cubs with her, so. Yeah, yeah, just love, just <laughs> yeah, love, just a little a, love one. That's a funny thing. We'll get to that in a minute because I think that's particularly funny. But the, I mean, the whole situation. You're right. It's it happened. It happens really, really quickly. You guys had done enough good practice to, you know, it could have ended really badly. Um, and the fact that that scenario is one that a lot of people don't realise and know about is that the fact that grizzly bears will often, you know, particularly sour grizzlies when they have older cubs, they'll teach them how to hunt. And it's people have forgotten that we actually suck at everything. We've got shitty eyesight, shitty sense of smell, and 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 shitty hearing compared to normal game animals. So we actually make for great practice. It's kind of like a gimme sneaking up on a person because we're too busy staring at the back of the DSLR trying to take a photo of a cabin, totally oblivious to what's going on behind us. You know, there's four grizzlies staring, <laughs> yeah. out, of the, staring out of the buck brush going, okay, kids, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, this guy's got no chance. Yeah. yeah. So that's... It doesn't look awesome. very meaty, but I'm sure we can kill it easy. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty awesome. I mean, I... It was funny. I was actually happened to be in the same camp. Uh, well, not the same camp, the same working outfit. for the same outfit. And uh, I was just telling these boys that I was had a hunt change over, loaded a moose into a plane. You know, got all the antlers in there, got the groceries. You know, loaded everything out. New clients, big turnaround, blah blah blah. He'd been there for like half an hour, and we sort of pushed the float plane off the side of the lake, and he's floating out in the lake, and he turns and said, "Oh yeah, by the way, one of those kiwis got chewed up by a grizzly bear. I think he's one of your guys. Bye." And then got on a plane and flew away. <laughs> so I was literally remember standing there on the shore of the lake going, oh, this this is not good. This, this could potentially be the end of my business. <laughs> Thanks, Roger. <laughs> so I remember I called Curran and um, Curran called the outfitter and the outfitter said, oh, you know, he's fine. Darwin flew him to town and he got a few stitches and a bit of polysporin in the holes and promptly dropped him back out to camp. By mm. himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, we're not quite by myself. I got dropped dropped back off to camp, and we still had one day left of our oh, that's right. our hunters uh, our hunters hunt. So we uh, went out looking for a goat, and yeah, shot a goat on the last day. On the, la- on the last day, and <laughs> carried that yeah, out. I mean, just to put that in context, this is someone who got you know scratched up, bitten by a grizzly bear, and he's minimalized it, but he he certainly had some decent puncture wounds and quite a nasty <laughs> like it was a bit of an upgrade from a bad game of rugby it was yeah, it was yeah. a pretty serious beating and it could have gone really really badly and you know outfitter um won't mention his name but it'd be fair he's probably the least sympathetic individual you're ever going to get when it comes to being oh, yeah. attacked by a grizzly mm-hmm. and rightfully so yeah i mean he i won't go into that story now because it's a long and, and drawn out one but to make things sure he's missing sort of half his buck cheek and most of his back legs as a result of a grizzly bear attack so he's pretty um pretty unsympathetic to Ben's one sort of probably stuck his finger in the hole and said oh yeah it's not too bad yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yeah, we'll get you back yeah. into it okay so now we're back and obviously that was a, a relatively frightening experience the one question um that Curran wanted me to ask yeah. at the end of that was um, he put it quite eloquently actually he said I've done a lot of hunting in New Zealand he's done a little bit overseas but he's never had any real close run-ins with predators and he said 
the only time I've ever had eye contact with an animal when I'm hunting is when I'm the predator and they're the prey. And I know what that feels like. And I know what that looks like. His question was, did you have eye contact at any point (laughs) with that bear? And what did that feel like? And what did it look like? That's, uh, yeah, it's a good question, actually. Uh, And I don't think at any stage I actually made eye contact because, like, uh, yeah, it just happened so quick that, all I guess I was looking at was the mass and the mass not stopping when I was doing my standing my ground. <laughs> yeah. Um, and all and all that said and done, I mean the story, as we've just listened to it, is you know we we laugh and laugh our way through it, and it's, it was a bit of a joke for the boys. But um, in reality, you were pretty unlucky to be in that situation, particularly yep. that early on in your career. As you can probably attest to now, years oh, yeah. later, you've never had anything quite that bad since. Correct. But, I mean, it's part of the reason we do the ultimate OE training is to at least install in you some basic um, understanding that it is a risk. Mm-hmm. And then you and Sam, between the two of you, had done enough to, obviously, you're still sitting here now. I mean, if Sam couldn't find a rifle, exactly, it would have been, um, it would have been a little bit different. So, moving yeah. on, before we played the clip, you said... You under an ad, you knew that you were going to tell your grizzly story. Obviously, that's that that'd be number one for me, too, bro. <laughs> number two, so uh, the year after that happened, uh, we were out sheep hunting. We had a we had Dave Halliday, okay, so another ultimate OE boy, yep, another yeah. ultimate OE boy. He had been there the year before me, uh, he was out doing some scouting and he had found uh, Bandarams. So he was camped out on them. We'd been out looking for a couple of days uh, earlier and we didn't find anything worth chasing. So we decided to go back to where Dave was and have a crack at these rams. Uh, long story short, we're up at, uh, it's, it was early season, it was the first hunt, so we're up at 4.30 finding the horses. Yeah, we set it up, we did our thing. Uh, cruise on up this hill. I guess it would have been a five or a six hour ride. About an hour down a relatively well beaten trail and then we spent the next four to five hours beating our way through some old burn, trying to find our way up a hill and through some relatively nasty stuff as far as horses go. And we got to a point where there was a nice grassy area so we hobbled up our horses and left them there. We had the hunter and it was Sam and myself again. Yeah, we went and met up with Dave and we sat on these rams and Dave had their pattern down here. Every night at 6.30, 7 o'clock, like clockwork, they'd get up and move down to the greener pastures and have a feed. So we came up with a plan. Uh, long story short, best laid plans. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that, mind, like, that sounds too good to be true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... By the time the trigger got pulled, I think the Rams were at 700 yards walking the other way. Wow. Yeah, it was a hell of a lucky shot. Um, the guy had actually never <laughs> never hunted with a rifle before. He had only just sighted in at the range about a week before. Wow. Yeah. So you went from like bow hunting at 20 yards to <laughs> 700 yards. Sending a projectile yeah. 700. <laughs> 
That's a big swing. Um, so uh, he, yeah, he had it, and they backtracked, and I think it was ten thirty at night before the ram was actually killed. Right. So it was early season. It was still light at ten thirty. Yes. Yeah. It was still light. Light was diminishing. Um, so I was just sitting down behind the spotting scope, keeping an eye on things. And we come up with a bit of a game plan. I went back to check on the horses, and one of my horses had decided that his friends were going to be eating by now, so he wasn't going to hang around and wait for us, hobbles or not. So he started wandering his way back down the hill. And then I saw the other two horses that we had just standing, minding their own business. I pulled up my binoculars and had a look, and the saddles that they had on them were under their bellies. Oh, boy. Yeah, so... I uh, shot back up because they were on a different side of the ridge to where the horses were. So I shot back up and got on the radio to Sam and said, oh, look, we've got some issues with the horses. I'm going to – oh, I don't have time to make it there before you guys have dealt everything. Um, I'll meet you guys back at camp and give me a call when you're a couple of hours out and I'll get some dinner or something sorted. So long story short, I had a hell of a battle with those two horses – We'd lost a bit of gear that I went scrambling around the hill for 11, 11.30 at night in the last bit of daylight trying to find. Well, they'd come off the horses? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. With that. And, uh, yeah, I got the settles back on. I had one set of reins and one lead rope between the two horses because the other stuff had got lost because it had fallen off the saddle when it went under them and hadn't been tied on well enough. Yeah. So I started, obviously the horse that was starting to walk down by the time I got to the horses with their saddles under their belly, um, <laughs> that horse was gone. Right. <laughs> and uh, I was just super worried as to where he would have gone and finding him and all that sort of stuff. But at that stage I went, well, this is what we've got, so I'm going to take my two horses back to camp. The other horses are all still tied up at the trees. Got to get them. Got to get back to them to get them out so they can have a bit more food. Um, so I made my way down the mountain. I had Dave's pack because earlier on Dave and I were together, and I said, "Oh look, I'll take your pack back and just put it onto the one of the horses, and so then you're not getting slowed down by it." So I took his camping gear and all that sort of stuff. Brand new pack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, tied tied that onto the saddle, and uh, we were, I was making my way down the hill, just leading them, and had the. This was where I learned actually to put a breakaway on my. Uh, like when you're leading a horse, and you usually put a wee loop around your lead rope and hook it over your uh, saddle horn. Yeah, I put a. I put For a the break- record, I'm shaking my yeah. head. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> yeah, I, I, nowadays I put a breakaway on that. Yeah, I bet you do. Um, so that's what I've done there, and I was leading these horses down, and they are relatively young horses, Luigi and Khan. And Luigi can be a little bit of a prick at best. Great horse, solid horse, but when he wants to be an arsehole, he can be. And Khan is just scared of everything. So that was what I had to deal with on the way down. And it was all downhill. So there was a bit of a combination of riding when the horses I was leading, when the horse I was leading wouldn't go and 
I'd ride it for a little while and then I'd start leading them again and just picking our way down the best of my memory through no trail, just through dead trees. So obviously, whole time going down the hill, you've got your saddles riding forward onto your horses, so I'm constantly trying to fix them and they're not happy to be there because they want to be back at camp as well. Um, I think about one thirty in the morning, I found the main trail. That would have been a good feeling. I was pretty stoked, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to come across that trail. It, yeah, the last sort of part of it, it was I couldn't have seen my hand in front of my face. Uh, and I just jumped on Luigi and uh, went, please take me home. <laughs> and he picked his way down and then I took it to the trail. So that was a bit of a stroke of luck. Like the whole time I sort of had a general idea is, He's heading in the right direction, but I still don't really know where I'm going. Yeah, horses are amazing. Like, they can go in full pitch black yep, that, and yeah, find their way home. Just save my ass probably more times than I care to admit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they are quite special for that. Uh, so either way, made, made our way back to the trail and got down the trail, and I was just like, big sigh of relief. Thank Christ for that. Home and hose, I'm about an hour, hour and a half away from So, half an hour down the trail, I looked back and the pack was tied onto the saddle of Khan. It was starting to go over to one of the sides, so I stopped to straighten that up. I had the lead rope, foolishly, still I had the lead rope of Khan hooked over the saddle horn of Luigi. So... I had Sam's gun as well at that stage. So I had Sam's gun on his horse. So I had my gun on my horse. And I stopped to straighten up this uh, saddle and I got one of the things undone, one of the straps undone and got it, settled up. And I was, actually I had two out of three of the straps and the third strap had one loop left on it. And then for no particularly good reason, Luigi went, shit. Khan went, no, yeah. and they had a big tug of war, and they managed to snap an inch thick rope between the two of them, because, you know, they, I've been told, let's just say, you put a loop around it so that if they get an appalling tug of war, you can just yeah. pull that off. Tell you what, you try pulling that off when they're having a tug of war. That ain't happening. <laughs> so they snapped that rope. One horse went barreling off with a gun one way. Another horse went barreling off with a gun the other way. And I was left there sitting there with no light, no guns, pitch black, grizzly territory. This is a year after you got yeah. chewed on. <laughs> yeah. So I sat down and went, ah, shit. <laughs> I am done. Looked up at the sky and uh, like it was two or three hours worth of darkness at that time. Looked up and saw the northern lights and, oh, that's nice. You know, sweet. Probably going to die here. <laughs> and I was like, probably actually the main thing I was thinking was, Darwin is going to kill me. Right. <laughs> Who's the boss? So I went, well, it's 2 o'clock, 2.30, whatever it was now. I might as well just go back to camp and worry about this tomorrow. So I started making my way back down the trail and uh, found the horses. Long story short, got those two horses uh they had the saddles under their belly, 
did a little bit of damage, destroyed Dave's pack, lost a bunch of his stuff. But I just took the saddles off, threw them on the side of the track, barebacked the one horse and led the other horse. And uh, we got I got back to camp around 3.30. All the horses were still tied up. And then there was a horse standing with a saddle on it. <laughs> so Jasper had been kind enough to take himself all the way back to camp. And, and his uh, hobbles. And his hobbles. Still had his hobbles on. Yeah. No rubbed up. Nothing. Yeah, was... So the next day, went back to get the saddles. And uh, we went back, obviously, looking for all the gear and found a whole bunch of grizzly tracks all around. <laughs> <laughs> so that's most likely what the uh, horses got spooked at. And I was sitting there in the dark with no torch, no guns, nothing. Nice. Yeah, that would probably be my second most scary experience. In hindsight, absolutely. I can imagine it would be a little bit unnerving. The um, There's a few good lessons there. Oh, yeah, you're not wrong. Some, some real good <laughs> lessons there. I remember one of the guides at the outfit I was working for had his, you're talking about the lead rope being hard tied or tied or looped onto the saddle horn or mm. saddle in front. I saw a horse, a pack horse, and, and generally what we teach is not putting a loop in it, you know, not actually looping it over there at all generally but he had and he had it over the top of his leg so if you're going to do it oh, you no, always yep. put it underneath your leg and then over because if the horse behind pulls back what that does is it actually tightens up and pins you in the saddle so you can't actually get your leg out if yep. you need to and this particular guy the horse pulled back it pinned him in the saddle and it snapped both girths and it flicked him the saddle the whole lot up into the tree. Holy shit. Pinned in the saddle, he broke his collarbone, a couple of ribs, I think he broke, cracked his jaw like it was Serious. season ender. Yeah. But it's the the power that they can generate. And as you say, if one goes one way and the other one goes the other way, it just goes pop, something's going to give. Yeah. You know, and the bruising, I remember, still remember the bruising on his leg <laughs> and where, the, where the rope dug in. That was certainly, and that was in my first year. So yeah, I was pretty green behind the ears. So that was a, a big lesson for me. Yeah. If you're going to do any kind of looping or tying on, you better hope that it, if somebody pulls hard, it's not going to tighten up. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's a that's a good one. I enjoyed that. Good. Enjoyed that. If any budding hunting guides are listening to it, as I said, there's a few lessons in that. Um. Okay. Here's a question for you: If you had an unlimited budget, oh yeah, so unlimited budget, unlimited amount of time, no restrictions whatsoever, what would you hunt and why? For me, I'd love to hunt a caribou. Really? I know, right? Tell me why. I'm not sure what it is. I just... Is it because they're particularly elusive in the area that you do most of your guiding? It could have something to do with it. Um, I just love them as, as an animal. I love this, the way they look. They're a uh, uh, mountain caribou. Yeah. Um, Dude, I'm doing a month's guiding in the Yukon this year, and they're moose caribou grizzly hunts. I'm... Most excited, one hundred percent by the caribou. Yeah, there you go. They're just so different. They're yeah, they're different. a cool animal. Eh? I I really do like them, and I guess uh, a moose would have been something pretty high up. Having asked me that before I come over to Canada, do you figure out how much work they were? Yeah, no kidding. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, for me, I I really love the caribou, and I don't I don't have. Or I haven't yet developed the desire to go down the sheep track yet. Right. 
It's unusual because yeah. you've done a fair share of sheep hunting. Yeah, and I love the sheep hunting. Don't get me wrong, but uh, if if there was a sheep to chase, it would be the stones because right. of the challenge. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean you've got your polos and that sort of stuff, which is all cool. But for me, it doesn't like my hunting background hasn't been like a solid um, like this. So many different animals out there. Yeah. That in New Zealand you don't get exposed to unless you're reading hunting magazines from overseas and all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah, for me that the one animal yeah, I want is the amount of caribou and I have got a tag for one this year. Oh good for you. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, I just need to find someone to go and whack one. <laughs> After the hunting season. <laughs> well, I know Sam's looking for a sheep hunting partner, so maybe he can compromise. Yeah. He's like, do you want to go sheep hunting this year? I'm like, when? He's like, October. I'm like, nope. <laughs> yeah. There's no way I'm getting wet Just for everybody's reference, that's when the lakes have long started frozing up. And if you, if you do that, you're playing a dangerous game of yeah. Survivor, the real kind. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, so that's one end of the spectrum. If... You could only hunt one animal for the rest of your life, so one animal in one area, but you could do it unlimited. What would that be? Probably the fellow. Fellow deer. Because they taste amazing. Nice. That'd be my one call. Your one call. Spoken like a uh, true central Otago, right? <laughs> I, I agree. The fellow are fantastic, and I guess... Like, as far as hunting, I mean... Well, they kind of get a little bit of everything, right? Yep. So in the springtime, you're shooting the nimble ones out on the bush edge, but they're still quite entertaining in the rut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, like I say, uh, my background in hunting was has always been more of a hunting for food sort of a situation opposed to a hunting for a trophy. So if you were um, talking to someone who was sort of smart, motivated, and wanted to experience hunting for the first time, what bit of advice would you give them? I guess you just got to really want it. Yeah. I mean, that's it, right? There's a lot of guys that would like to hunt, but really would actually prefer to shoot opposed to hunt. It's a big difference, and to be honest with you, I don't think um, that's very prevalent in New Zealand, and it sort of touches a little bit on what we were saying before about the pest control versus mm-hmm. hunting thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a mentality shift. You know, it's a difference in, in hunting mentality that because we live in New Zealand, we think it's normal. Yep. But I still remember telling stories, you know, often with gusto when I was a younger version of myself to American clients who I always found it weird and interesting. I didn't understand why when I was telling stories about, you know, shooting a hundred goats in a weekend or going yep. out and shooting 30 or 40 possums in a weekend, that was just so foreign to them. Yeah. And the biggest thing they'd say is, well, what did you do with the meat? <laughs> and it just didn't dawn on me because there was, there was a hard line between hunting for the freezer where we took everything. Yep. Yep. And, and my father groomed me very well in that way that you didn't waste anything. Yep. But then when you're out shooting goats on the same property, yep. that if you didn't hammer them back, you'd go into the backpack and there'd be 200 of the bastards That's right. You know, yeah. within five minutes, it felt like. Yep. And it was just not practical to drag every single one out of them for dog tucker. Like we used to 
doing for dog tucker, but if you're shooting 100 over a weekend, it's just not. <laughs> it's more dog tucker than you need. Yeah, you can, more dog tucker <laughs> than you got space for, or there's just no way. You, you know, trying to drag that amount of volume out of by hand is just not a practical thing. That's so right. it just it doesn't happen. So we have this opportunity to pull the pest control card, or mm. the you know, if I don't do it, it'll get shot by Doc or yep, shot by yep, somebody else or yep. poisoned or and so at that point it doesn't really matter so I'll just take nothing or I'll take the back straps or yeah and we're we're not restricted by seasons yeah that's a big thing I miss and that yeah <laughs> we're not restricted by seasons but the result of that is is when you're talking to guys who hunt in the raw yeah well, why would I want to fill my freezer up with a stinking right. run it up stag when I know I just wait two or three months and I can shoot one on, you know, in the late winter, early spring yep. and it'll be taste way better. So why would I waste freezer space exactly. with that? So again, I think it's kind of a, something that we need to front up to in, as hunters for sure, and at least be open and honest about the fact that, um, you know, we don't always take all the meat. I know for a fact, yep. but, you know, people don't take all the meat. Like yeah, sure. you can't tell me that you walk in, you know, two or three days, shoot three red deer and you <laughs> tear out every stitch of meat. Like, that's exactly. just not, unless you've yeah. got a helicopter to come and pick you up. And if you do, great, fantastic. And yeah. I'm sure people do. But yeah. if you're walking in, you yeah, know, particularly right. if you've got designated landing zones, you know, I'm watching the boys drop tar at the moment on Facebook. Like, you're not telling me that you're carrying out three bull tar from where you are. Like, it's just not exactly happening. You'll yeah. shoot a nanny or a young bull to eat, but I guarantee yeah. you're not pulling him out. So, yeah, it's an interesting conversation Mm -hmm. and everybody's sort of got an interesting perspective on it. Yeah. And it just doesn't happen here. Like it's flat out illegal. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And so everything you shoot in BC or everything you shoot in BC now, now they've closed the grizzly bear Mm -hmm. hunting, is you have to take it all out. And BC is back straps, front quarters, hind quarters, tenderloins. Yes. Yep. That's your restrict. You have to take at least that, and you're encouraged to take more if you can. I know um, a lot of the outfits I work for in BC certainly encourage you to take more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the Yukon, it's even more extreme. That's you can't leave more than a pound, which equates to about a handful of edible meat behind at a kill site. Yes. And if they will regularly come and check you, fly you back to your kill site in a helicopter, and say, you know, why did you leave this behind? Here's a ticket. So it's it's very heavily regulated. When you're talking about the size of a moose, which is the size of a cattle beast, then that's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Yeah. In New Zealand, I guarantee the boys are going to the (laughs) the wop blocks. You know, they've got designated landing areas. Yep. You shoot a full grown whoppity bull. yeah, yeah, put yeah, your hand yeah. up. Honestly, <laughs> if you've humped out every single piece of meat down to a pound left behind of a you know a whoppity bull. Yeah, nah. Doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, nah. Yeah, exactly. The grizzly bear stuff's interesting. Have you heard much about that here? No. What's the latest developments? The latest developments? Well, they've, they've, they've outlawed it. Mm-hmm. So they've shut it down here yep. in, in, Van- in BC. Yeah. Which I know to a lot of people listening to this, I mean, if you're growing up in New Zealand and you haven't been in and around, you know, their game management or hunted bears before, you know, you think, why would you want to hunt a grizzly bear? You know, it, it generally doesn't interest too many Kiwi hunters yep. until they get over here and they're 
they're a part of it. So shutting it down is kind of a, a moot point for most Kiwi hunters. And yeah. I actually, the conversations I had at SCI, there was a lot of, which I found quite discouraging, a lot of hunters were saying, well, that's BC and it's, you know, all the people in Vancouver voted on it and they, you know, they lost their grizzly bear hunting. That's their own fault. It's mm. not our problem. It's not a, that's, it's not yeah, my problem. Right. It's their problem, whatever. I viciously disagree with that. That's a, a massive oversight in my mind because yep. <laughs> how it happened, like they have hunted grizzly bears in BC regulated, so you have to, every single area in BC is um, regulated in terms of how many animals get taken out per year. Yep. You are encouraged to shoot mature males, mm -hmm. which doesn't have an overall effect, a negative overall negative effect on the population. In reality, it actually increases the productivity of a bear population because the mature males are what kills yep. the cubs. Yep. They actively predate on other bear cubs every year to bring the sows Sound into season. Hunter. So if you're killing the big dominant boars in an area, you're actually giving the sows a chance to raise their two or three cubs yep. to maturity. So the reality is if you're harvesting mature males out of a population, there's actually more bears. Mm -hmm. You know, I heard uh, a fact the other day, grizzly bear mortality rates are higher mm. in protected areas where you cannot hunt than they are in areas that are hunted. Yep. So yep. that's one thing. The whole grizzly bear harvest, so they estimate there's somewhere between fourteen and 16,000 grizzly bears in BC. Yep. Admittedly, the, it's, BC's big and bears are hard to keep track of. So yep. how accurate that is, it's almost impossible to know, but I suspect it's pretty solid because the biology for the last 100 years, the conservation of the last 100 years has been based on that number and there's more now than there were when they started managing them like that. Right, so right. they're obviously in the right ballpark. Right. Um, the entire legal outfitted harvest, so where residents of British Columbia would go and buy a grizzly bear tag and go in the lottery or a ballot mm -hmm. to hunt a grizzly bear, they did about 65 to 70%, I believe, of all of the grizzly bears shot in BC in 2016. Yeah, right. 30% of that are... Is through outfitters. So when you go and work for an outfit, when we are guiding or yep. one of our ultimate O boys are wrangling and moving to guiding, the, the outfitters control the international hunting tags or the non-resident tags and they get allocated out and they're worth a lot more money. Mm -hmm. So the 30% makes more money for the economy and the overall conservation than the 70%. But all of that put in equates to about 350 bears a year. So 350 bears out of, let's say, 14,000 if we go to the bottom end, yep. which equals, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's around 2%. Yeah, okay. So 2% of the overall bear population harvested through hunting. The you know accepted scientific level of a sustainable harvest is between 5 and 7% of the males of a population, so it's well under that. Yep. If anything, it's actually promoting... Well, that's exactly it, right? Exactly. It's promoting more bears being born. Yep. And the other thing that it does if you are harvesting mature males is it's you're often taking out the ones that are actively, once they get to a certain age and certain size, they will actively be predating on moose calves, elk calves, 
babies yep. in the springtime, they'll get really good at it. They specialize in it. They're kind of like people, like you specialize in fridges. I specialize in sitting on my ass and getting fat. <laughs> um, huh? And they'll go out and they'll be actively killing moose calves. Okay. And, you know, cats will do the same. I heard a statistic today, actually, of a, um, a cat they were following in BC. They had him collared, and they estimated that that one cat was killing 40% of well, that one cat, yeah. only thirty percent. That one cat killed thirty percent, one cat of a whole sheep population in a year. Yeah, because he got it in his mind that I'm good at this shit, and the sheep taste good. Sheep taste good. I'm just going to live here. I'm just going to nail every couple of days when I'm hungry. I'll nail one. And it had that much of an effect on the whole population Jesus. that the biologists they had him collared. So when the local outfitter caught up with him yep. and they had a client shoot him. The biologists were stoked. They're like, this cat <laughs> is the worst <laughs> for sheep conservation in the whole area because he's just specialized in it and got good at it. Kind of like dogs, eh? Once they get a taste for it. Once they figure it out. And I mean, yeah. you know, lots of examples of that in the animal kingdom, right? So you've got certain lion populations yeah, yeah. that will specialize in buffalo and you've got um, certain wolf populations that will specialize in moose or, you know, mice or salmon you know they figure it out yeah orcas do it you know yeah. you'll get resident populations of orcas that specialize in catching seals you know the ones that you see smash up on the beach and yeah. do a bit of seal tossing yeah that's yeah. one specific species one specific family group huh. of, of orcas are the the only ones to my knowledge i might be yeah. wrong but I've, I'm, it's a david Attenborough fact so it must be correct <laughs> um they're the only ones that do it on that one beach wow and they're the only ones who've learned how to do it. So it's it's a learned thing. So when you take out a mature grizzly bear that's got his taste in killing moose calves, then yep, it makes yep. actually a huge difference in terms of how many moose are going to be around. Because yeah, exactly. people think that you're going to get off a float plane in the middle of the Yukon and there's just going to be moose everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's not the case. It's not the Serengeti. Like it's a really hard environment and there yeah. are not thousands of animals. They're there, but you really have to look for them. And that comes back to the importance of actual hunting of the predators. Like, coming over in 2015, I said, no, I'd never never shoot a bear, I'd never shoot a wolf. After working in the industry, and I have a huge amount, naturally enough, huge amount of respect for grizzly bears. And if there was one skin I'd love to get back, it would be that one that chewed on me. Yeah, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, like the, like you said, the benefits of actually hunting the big aggressive alpha. Yeah, out of a population is, is good for the overall population. And it's kind of a, a, a weird thing too is by hunting the grizzly bears, you create a value on them. Like they're a, a resource, a commodity. Mm-hmm. So yep. they, they are contributing to the economy. Yep. And they're a thing in that area. And what that does is incites research on that area. So if you stop hunting them, suddenly there is nobody in the background making sure the population's okay. They get forgotten. Yeah. And then a mining thing might come in and nobody sees anything. And suddenly now you've got a threatened population because nobody was looking after them in the first place. Yeah. So one thing the outfitting does here is create a reason to be following them. So all of that said and done, you've got science, logic, and you know the p- 
pure numbers of grizzly bears kicking around and the fact that it's been working since outfitting started in yep. Canada like 70 years ago, yep. you know, they've been hunting them for over 100 years, managing them as an outfits in like 70 years and there's more of them now. Even the 10 years I've been doing it, I see more bears now than I did 10 years ago. Yeah, right. You know, I don't know if I'm just slowing down and looking a bit more, <laughs> but I mean, that's my on-the-ground experience. Yeah. You know, you, if you're in an area where they're traveling, you, you know, at Pop Lake, for example, we've seen, you know, two or three bears a week. You know, they're telling me that you shouldn't, you might see one bear in the area that you're in for the three months you're in there. It's, yep. it's just not. Yeah, it's not happening. Not real. So you're seeing these bears. So they're doing really well. So all this logic and stuff and everybody in the hunting community in BC quite happy with the idea of hunting grizzly bears. Yep. So the point of contention and where it started is in the hunting regulations in BC, the only animal that you didn't legally have to take the meat. Mm-hmm. So people were shooting a grizzly bear, skinning them out, taking the skin and the skull and leaving the meat behind. Yep. So you are at that point, it comes in the dirty word trophy hunting. Yep. Okay, and people have got a real problem with that. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened <clears throat> during the election last year, it was a political party that used grizzly bear hunting. So they pushed the emotive facts, so they pushed the buttons of people who didn't hunt, so not anti-hunters, non-hunters. And they used very emotive language and said, you know, do you think that people should be able to trophy hunt grizzly bears for fun or sport hunt grizzly bears for fun? They don't even take the meat. They're just taking the trophy. Yeah. You know, coincidental big fat international client comes over, shoots a grizzly bear. They give it a name. They call it Fluffy. They stick it on the front <laughs> of the Vancouver's sun yeah. and they generate this, this, this hate, this disdain for trophy hunting. Yeah. And then they run a survey, which was promoted by a makeup brand, Oh, yeah. I think it was promoted by L'Oreal. And they said, do you <laughs> think that people should be able to hunt grizzly bears? They did the survey in BC, in Vancouver, which yep. is a big city. metropolitan yep. city. Falls into the category we were talking about before. Completely separated from the wild. Their total exposure of grizzly bears is watching cartoons, you know, Paddington Bear, you know, Beluga the Bear, yep. you know, the two grizzlies in a pen at the top of Grass Mountain that they go and yep. look at through the wire who are overweight and <laughs> just lay there and yeah. roll around. <laughs> you know, completely skewed view of what bears are actually like in the wild. Yeah. And they went, no, I don't think so. So they all vote no. Yep. So what they did is they banned grizzly bear hunting. Yeah, just from that. Just from that. Like, mm-hmm. and it's how popular politics. If yeah. you separate yourself, because the hunters in BC for years were like, well, the people in Vancouver are going to be the people in Vancouver. They'll jump up and down. They don't know what they're talking about. We'll just ignore them. Mm-hmm. People in Vancouver are the ones that hold the vote. Yeah, that's right. Suddenly, BC hunters are backpedaling big time mm-hmm. because the damage is already done. They're so far and behind the curve now, they're very lo- unlikely to catch up. And the next thing they're going to go after is their cat hunting. Yeah. Why? So, because they use dogs. Yep. And that's a very easy thing to create an emotive headline and get that banned. Yeah. So it's the anti-hunters, the 1% who are inciting the masses to think that hunting is this big, bad thing, that hunters know that's not the reality, that's not who we are, but we've done a yep. horrible job communicating it. Exactly, and backing up what we do. So that massive rant, and I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, no, you know, right. we should yep. be talking about you, but I'm just, no, it's a right. subject that upsets the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. That rant is an example of, and let's dial it back to New Zealand, Yep. how non-hunters, people who don't hunt, people who are separated from agriculture and hunting and don't understand why we do it, yep. it's an example of how 
if we're not careful, the population who don't understand will tell us whether we can hunt or not. Exactly. We'll get our social license as hunters revoked. And we will have no say in the matter. And by the time it happens, we'll be like, oh, oh, but wait. <laughs> yeah. And it'll be too late. Yeah, exactly. And then literally it'll be great for Dave's business. All the pest control will be pest control. Yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. So it's now you're just murdering animals for the sake of murdering animals to look after a native yep. bush. And the guys that do the pest control are usually pretty bloody good at it. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's... In New Zealand, we've got a different scenario and, you know, our extreme greenies want to see things with warm blood wiped off the the islands and we (laughs) want to go back to a, you know, pre-European utopia. I mean, I get where they're coming from. We should look after our endemic species and our native species, but we are going to have to, practically speaking, find a balance between the two. And I believe there is a balance. There's some animals that we should 100% be aiming at getting rid of. Uh, you know, rats and, and you know, possums and, and, you know, to some extent wallabies and, and things like yep. that. But when you start getting to the big game species, the reality is that's now become part of our culture. It's part of who we are. Mm-hmm. So that's when the compromise starts coming in. Yeah. So, yeah, big subject. Mm-hmm. No. Well, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed twisting a year. For the last, what has it been, 10 minutes, I've just been running my mouth. But... <laughs> it was always going to come out at some point. I've just been waiting for a good excuse to to yeah, to, to have a little bit of a, a soapbox session. And again, it's it's my opinion. It's it's not necessarily the opinion of of everybody. And I, but I, I honestly believe that it's important to have some kind of debate. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the reason that Curran and I started this is we can see that we've got an opportunity in New Zealand. Yep. to get in front of the curve because we're a smaller population. We've got a lot of animals. You know, we do need to control their numbers. Hunters can play a massive part in conservation, can play a massive part of, you know, helping create that balance. And, you know, as hunters, gatherers, it's a such a nice thing to be able to do as Kiwis is yes. go out and fill your freezer with clean, organic yep. meat, which actually has some ecological bonuses for our environment. So yeah. not only, you know, is it a good thing to hunt for ourselves, it's also a good thing to hunt for, you know, New Zealand, the environment and our endemic animals. So I think we've got a great opportunity in New Zealand to show non-hunters why we do it and show them that we're not all bloodthirsty killers we don't actually enjoy exactly. killing things it's kind of like the police argument eh? like yeah. the small amount of police that are pricks or whatever get give the rest of the ones that can actually be good bastards oh yeah a bit of a bad name like, exactly. we're not all not all 1080 yeah. uh, you know <laughs> 1080 crazies because yeah. i guarantee a lot of the non-hunters in new zealand think that we're all crazies like stefan hope who curran spoke to a couple of weeks ago um, he t- told me the same story. He would regularly go to forest and bird meetings and sit in the forest and bird meetings as a hunter. Yep. And he said it, it was a lasting impression when they figured out that he hunted. Everybody were there was shocked. He said, "Well, you, you know, you can't be a hunter. You, you know, you're logical. Yeah. You know, you're you're nice. You're you're not a bloodthirsty. You know, cool. ten eighty <laughs> nutter, right? Yeah. Yep. So 
I think there's a real opportunity for those who are listening that don't fall into the extremist category. And to be frank with you, if you're a 1080 extremist or a, you know, kill everything extremist or you're a bloodthirsty, I just like going out and yeah. killing shit and crushing cans, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, well, we'll never hunt together. That's right. right. It's just the difference between a killer and a hunter and what the non-hunters don't realize is there is that difference. It's a massive difference. Yeah. And hunting isn't about killing, it's about hunting. It's yeah. about hunting the nature, the experience. It's yeah. It's having the connection with the environment, having a connection with your food, yep. and it's you know it's a very, it's a spiritual thing on a lot of levels, mm-hmm. and that's why hunters often don't explain it very well because your average hunter, we don't know how to articulate the fact that it's a spiritual thing. Yeah. Without you know. Yeah. Well, this is it. Like a lot of us can be pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good. Yeah. Because we it say is. what we think. Yeah. And we we. You know, love hunting. We love animals, and I and I honestly believe the more that this podcast catches on, mm-hmm. I think we're going to build a following of people that have the same mindset. Yep. And then the goal is to get us together and do some positive things for the New Zealand environment and the animals that we hunt, and show the public, you know, who we really are. Exactly. Yeah, it's definitely a great, great thing that you got going on. Let's hope so. Mm. So if you're listening, tell your mates to listen. Tell non-hunters to listen. Tell everybody to listen. Yeah. Like our podcast, share it, rate it, whatever you've got to do to pump it up the list because it would be great to get a bit of momentum. Yeah. I mean, you're not necessarily asking everyone to go out and be a hunter. You're just trying to give them the education of what hunting involves. Absolutely. Right. If you're not okay with hunting and you don't want to pull the trigger, that's fine. Yeah. But understanding why we do what we do, Mm. is a good thing and my advice would be befriend a hunter they're always looking for someone to give meat away to yeah that's right you know the more meat you can give away like I personally love giving meat away I know a lot of my hunting buddies it's one of the you know biggest joys they get out of it is giving people you know cost effective good quality meat you know and at the end of the day that's what it's all about for me anyway yeah too right okay we'll knock it on the head we're gonna go get some get some sushi and uh Oh, well, pretty good. Yeah, mate, good on you. Look after yourself. Be safe this season, eh? Cheers, buddy. You too. Thank you for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. If you would like to receive a short email from us once a fortnight that contains everything that we've found interesting, educational, entertaining or inspiring within the hunting world, as well as updates on relevant hunting issues, our on-the-ground initiatives and any upcoming events, please visit theeducatedhunter.com forward slash join. You can also check us out on Instagram at theeducatedhunter or finally join the conversation in the Educated Hunter Facebook group. The links for all this can be found below in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening and catch you on the clearing. G'day everyone, it's Matt speaking. Um, I thought I'd take this opportunity to quickly answer a question that Kern and I often get about the Ultimate OE program. And that question is, why should I do the training? Why should I pay the money? Can't I just go to, let's say, Canada and get my own job in the hunting industry? Now, that's a fair enough question. Uh, both Kern and myself would have asked that question before we've had the experience that we've had. And we don't mind answering that question as a result. You know, if you're sitting at home thinking, you know, I'm a really good hunter, I've got plenty of experience, you know, I grew up on a farm, I've got plenty of practical experience, outdoor experience, surely I can't just go over there and pick it up, save myself the money and the time. 
the answer to the question and why we believe you should do the Ultimate OE program and believe that it will enhance your overall experience in Canada is kind of a um, kind of a long answer, and I need to give you a little bit of context about a what you learn and b why you learn it and how that then translates into a better overall experience. So. During the training, let's use the Canadian program as an example. It's more established than our, our Scottish one. Um, so the Canadian training is based around skills, knowledge, and qualifications. The content of that training is designed by and contributed to by our employers in Canada, as well as Curran and myself as experienced guides and wranglers, as well as a number of other industry experts that contributed to that training content. So... To sum that up, it's what you need to know to hit the ground running when you get to Canada. So our employers expect our cadets to know and understand a certain uh, amount of information and have a certain level of skill before they get there so they can hit the ground running. So on the skills front, we're talking about learning how to tie diamonds, pack horses, handle horses, ride horses, saddle your own horse. We do um, in-depth trophy skinning and taxidermy, so turning ears, eyes, ears, lips, noses, salting skins. We do predator safety. We do chainsaw safety operation and maintenance. We do backcountry first aid, a Canadian backcountry first aid, so you get your Canadian certificate. Uh, We do... Um, in terms of qualifications, uh, so you've got your first aid and you've got your Canadian firearms license or p- possession and acquisition license, which means that you can, we teach that here in New Zealand, so that you have your Canadian possession and acquisition license on arrival in Canada, therefore you can legally carry, carry a firearm in the mountains of Canada, which is a, um, a huge advantage even if it's just for bear defence. Um, so we do that as a qualification and the knowledge and theoretical side we cover a huge amount of information from uh, legal side of things so Canadian firearms law, Canadian game law, tags, the whole outfitting system, how outfits work, um, how to interact with clients, what your role is when you get there, um, what wrangling means, how to wrangle how to best support your guide, how to work your way up the ladder as quickly as possible if that's your end goal, um, how to hunt Canadian animals, a uh, huge amount of information that is all very relevant to your placement in Canada. So we cram all that into 10 days. Um, we give you the, the information that you need to sort of build on those skill sets so that when you get to Canada, you will be a very effective employee and your learning curve won't be anywhere near as steep. So from an employer's perspective, our graduates make very attractive employees because they know they're going to turn up with A, the legal side of things squared away, for example, your firearms, B, your paperwork stuff squared away, so your your working visa, your social insurance number, bank account, driver's license, all that kind of stuff we help you with. So the outfitters and employers know that squared away and see the knowledge side of things so they, when you get there, They know that you know how things work, um, how to interact with clients, how the business works, what you're there to do. That all is actually very, very important as well in terms of how steep your learning curve is and how quickly you become an effective and useful employee for the employer. So all of that makes a very attractive package for our outfitters. And that means that we can secure essentially the jobs ahead of time 
because our employers know what they're going to get from us. Even though we haven't trained you yet, they understand that the level of employee that we deliver to Canada is higher than what they're going to get from just hiring somebody randomly over the internet, for example. I mean, as I said, you could be New Zealand's best hunter and think you know what you're getting yourself in for, but without that prior knowledge and training, um, it's always a very steep learning curve for anyone that heads over. So from a employer's perspective, hiring one of our guys is much more attractive than hiring somebody randomly over the internet. For that reason, we can secure the best jobs, and if you go through our program, it means that we're going to match you up with an outfitter that we think you're going to do the best with. So that really starts talking about your overall experience. Having done the training, when you get to Canada, your learning curve isn't as steep, so you're going to enjoy yourself a lot more, you're going to get more opportunities on the hunting front, you're going to get more opportunities in terms of working with guides right out of the gate. Having those skill sets means that you're not wasting time learning stuff that you could have learnt before you got there. Um, and on the other side of it is we, during the training, we're constantly assessing what outfit is going to be the best fit for you, depending on whatever your motivation is for going to Canada in the first place. So if you are committed to becoming a professional hunting guide, and this is the you know first or second stepping stone for that to happen, then we'll place you with certain outfits where we know that you've got a good chance of progressing up through the ranks and becoming a guide. If you're just going over for an overseas experience, for example, and you just want to um, the most experience and see the most country or different animals or what have you, whatever your motivation is, we might place you somewhere else. If you're looking for a very horse-heavy placement, we'll send you here. And if you're looking for a backpack-only placement, we might send you there. So that's a big advantage is that we understand all of our different outfitters really well and we can match them up with the best cadets or graduates through our program so everybody is happy. So that's another major advantage of going through us is you know you're going to get placed somewhere that you're going to enjoy yourself, it's going to challenge you and culturally you're going to line up with your, with your boss. So that's another reason why our program has had the success that it has um, is because we try and put people you know, the right people in the right places. And the other thing that's worth mentioning is we only work with the best outfitters in now estates more recently in Scotland. We don't work with ones that have bad reputations, that don't look after staff, etc., etc. So if we're not working with an outfitter or an estate already, there's probably a good reason for it. So just keep that in the back of your mind as well. As I say, me and Curran, before we had this experience, would have you know, jumped on the bandwagon and headed over there and just sort of hoped for the best and it's everybody's right to do that. But if you really want to get the most out of your experience, the most out of your ROE, then I strongly suggest giving us a call and, and talking over what we can do for you in terms of your, your hunting experience. I hope that makes it a little bit clearer. I understand that um, our program's not for everybody, but if you're you know under the age of 35 looking for an adventure, uh, want to do something a little bit more than you, you you know a little bit more unique than your cliche go to London and go to the pub type OE then ultimate OE might be for you like we are heavy on adventure heavy on unique and we guarantee that it'll be a you know a life-changing experience if you come through our program